It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
not all those who wander, are lost. You have entered Asgard North. Hope you have your dice ready. Let's get started. episode of Asgard North. I am your host, J-E-double-F, guiding you through tonight, thinking about discussing bards, music, sound effects, maybe something a little special at the end, and then maybe even a deep dive, or not, not necessarily a deep dive, but a dive into the ongoing issues with Wizards of the Coast and their new OGL possibility. First off, I want to thank you for joining me. I am uh, gladly drinking tonight a 14th Star Citronade, a hazy double IPA of about 7.7% featuring Citra hops. It is quite the good drink. It is a Vermont brewery. They are veteran-built, veteran-brewed, really good guys. Probably wouldn't approve of me mentioning this on air because they do have different beliefs than me for the most part. But good beer is good beer, especially when it's veteran-owned. So I'll be enjoying that tonight because it is good. It's first I've had a couple three sips, and it's a lot better than I was expecting it to be. So with the 20th episode and some of the previous discussions we had with the Halloween episode, which, if I remember correctly, aired after Thanksgiving, but whoops. One of the things I mentioned was sound effects, making the room feel even better while you're playing the game. And tonight, I'm actually going to demonstrate some of these sounds and some of these sound effects that, honestly, I wish I was playing a regular campaign right now because I would completely use some of the materials I have found. And for the record, the entrance music that I play before I go into the regular theme is provided by Tabletop Audio. Every every episode, I try to pick a little something different, something new that they've released. What I love about this is tonight was called Dungeon Collapse. I played like two and a half minutes of it. 
Each music and ambiance they release is 10 minutes long. This is like perfect. Everyone's gathering at the table. The game's not ready to start. As a DM, what you do is hit the button, play this music for the 10 minutes to make sure everyone gets all their dice out, their character sheets out, whatever out. When the music ends, you know what? Time to play. There are some great uses of music outside of the game or to prepare for the game. And you can even set the mood based on what you think the the theme of the uh, adventure that session will be. You know, they have, he has Vikings and pirates and taverns and medieval banquets and and fights. So depending on how you want to set the mood pregame, there are, are definitely plenty of options. Once again, I'm not sponsored. I would love to be, but I'm not. Just providing you some good tools that can be used. Now, I have I have a love-hate relationship with bards. I think they can be the most worthless worthless characters in the game. Far too often they're pigeonholed even more than say your your paladins or your holy clerics or even some mages. Everyone wants to walk around with a lyre or a guitar and change rock and roll songs into something that fits D&D. Well, it's funny, you know, the 30th time you hear the song, it gets old. And it seems like too many people fall into the pattern. Especially, well, if I'm being honest, probably from about third edition on, bards have been meh, in my opinion. Bards are perfect NPCs. I love using them as a dungeon master, but when my players play, it it's... It's always rough because probably second edition up, bards bards became their own separate class. And they never used to be, like an advanced D&D. I think is the most incredible bard version there is. And I was discussing this episode today while driving to get groceries with my executive producer. And it was kind of funny because we were talking about it, and he doesn't know any of the advanced D&D stuff. He, he started playing in the 5th edition, so he doesn't know any of the pre uh, or, oh, shoot, I didn't grab it, but or say the 2nd uh, edition complete Bard's Handbook and the stuff that's in there. All that, that is a good book, by the way, but I got thinking, why do I like the advanced D&D Bard way more than, say, the modern Bard? In mid-conversation, it struck me. The modern bard is to the modern relevancy to, to understand things you have to go to college. Without college, you're not really edumacated. The AD&D version of the bard was one I think some of us of I'm going to say at least 40 years of older and some under 40 so don't don't be offended if you're under 40 and this sounds insulting it's not meant to be but over a certain age I'm going to say 40 here as a general number a lot of times we had to learn things by getting our hands dirty and the AD&D bard is one such creature and it was funny cuz I was telling my executive producer all about it and I messed up I 
did not get the information accurate because I was going off of memory from the last time I played one 30 years ago. I was pretty close, pretty close. But I don't know if people really remember what it took to be a bard in the AD&D version. I have the Player's Handbook by Gary Gygax, the one with the white, I'm going to say white wizard with the gargoyles on it. Uh, what was it? 19, January 1980, 6th edition printing. Bards were not listed at the beginning of the book. They were listed in the back in the Appendix 2 section entitled Bards. Why is it in the appendix? Because it's not something you can start playing right away. As this character class subsumes the functions of two other classes, fighters and thieves, and tops them off with a bit of magical abilities, it is often not allowed by dungeon masters. Oh, God. Remember those editions where you could tell your characters no? Or tell your players no, for that matter? Even though this presentation is greatly modified from the original Bard character class, it is offered as supplemental to the system, and your DM will be the final arbiter as to the inclusion of Bards in your campaign. So to be a Bard, you had to have scores of 15 or better in the following abilities. Strength, Wisdom, Dexterity, and Charisma. Oh, by the way, you had to have at least a 12 score in Intelligence and a 10 in Constitution. Your likelihood of rolling that with the standard method is absolutely next to zero. And the Bard can only be human or half-elven. But here's what I thought was, was fascinating. And this is the part... I got the first part of this right, but it was the final part that I actually I actually got wrong with my executive producer. Bards begin play as fighters, and they must remain exclusively fighters until they have achieved at least the fifth level of experience. Any time thereafter, but in any event prior to attaining eighth level, they must change their class to that of thieves. Again, sometime between 5th and ninth level of ability, bards must leave off thieving and begin clerical studies as druids. How many remembered bards as being druids? I honestly did not. I was shocked when I read this earlier tonight. I do not remember the druid aspect of bards. But... At the time they are actually bards, and under druidical tutelage, bards must fulfill the requirements in all the above classes before progressing to Bard's Table 1. Very close to Bard's Tale 1, which, by the way, was a really great video game. They also must remain neutral, but can be chaotic, evil, good, or lawful neutral if they wish. And in here, in the regular book... They have 23 levels of bards. So if you went 5 in Fighter, 5 in Thief, you could go to 23, so you'd basically gain 33 levels of character for a bard. And you'd be able to cast up to 5th level 
druid spells. Now, what I love about AD&D in particular is that you were never a first-level bard. No, you had titles for every class. And it happens to be for bards, you have Rhymer, Lyrist, Sonatier, Scald, uh, Rackerade, uh, Troubadour, Minstrel, Muse, Lorist, Bard, Master Bard, and then Master Bard with you know, what level you were. So that was, after being shocked by the fact that they had Druid teaching, you look back at what they had. Experience points are strictly those gained as Bard, as all previously earned are not considered. Six-sided dice for your hit points. Now, at certain different levels, from, z- from first to 23rd, you could gain additional languages. So by the time you became a, a master bard of 23rd level, you would have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 additional languages to what you may have learned previously. There was probably not a language in your campaign that a 23rd level bard did not know. But then... They had charm percentages where they could charm the socks off of you. And then legend lore and item knowledge percentage to zero at starting out all the way up to 99% at your Master Bard 23 just by simply spending a little bit of time with an item or piece of information and boom, you could recall it. Tremendous, tremendous. I love this version of the Bard. This bard is kick-ass. I've never had anyone play it in my campaign. And there is a part of me that would love to throw an AD&D campaign together just so someone could work their way up to play a bard. And they could have leather or magical chainmail only as their armor. No shields. Clubs, daggers, darts, javelins, slings, scimitar, spear, staff, and sword. And the swords included broad, bastard, long, and short. They could use oil and they could never use poison unless they were of neutral evil alignment. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And then they had some different magical items that you could use and what and, and whatnot. An eighth level bard in AD&D would scare the bejesus out of me. An eighth level bard in fifth edition, I'm laughing at. Now, granted, 
by the simple math, you know you're looking at at least 18 actual levels earned. But you come across a bard. He became a bard because he fucked around and found out. He went out and did shit. He went out and did adventures. He went and read books in dungeons long lost forgotten. He's come across magical items galore as some as previous editions of this uh, of the show has mentioned with some of these AD&D modules. There was treasure to be found everywhere. So the spider thief, we'll say 5-5 five, five in each, has lived already one lifetime of adventuring to to almost get that sixth sense of, oh yeah, I can sense that magic in that item. That to me is what a bard should be. It is the modern version of bards are those idiot kids who go to college and think they know everything, but couldn't put a screw in a bolt to the right device. It, it I don't think I'm wrong here. I know I'm painting with a bit of a broad brush, but. So, we'll go to the 5th edition bard. Now, I will say there is a lot of uh, 5th edition character classes that I like. Um, Even with the bard, they have very specific bard colleges. See what I mean? They're even calling them colleges now. And you can be, you know, a various college of valor and, and, and things of that nature. It, it's pretty interesting. But you start out with spells known automatically. You start out with eight hit points, or one to eight hit points per level, which uh, I should say, actually in this edition it says high, high, hit points at higher levels. You roll a 1d8. Or you can select five before you roll. You can wear light armor, simple weapons, hand crossbows, long swords, rapiers, short swords, tools. Three musical instruments of your choice. Why does a bard have to play a musical instrument? Why? Now, I don't know if a voice counts as a musical instrument. It should, but it seems very... very short-sighted because... Isn't Shakespeare considered a bard? I don't recall him playing an instrument. I could be wrong. But the spells, they get cantrips now. And it's more magic magic user based. I don't I don't like it. I I I don't I'm sorry. But they do get some pretty cool things ability-wise. Like with the first level, you get bardic inspiration. You can inspire others through stirring words. Huh, wait a minute, stirring words? I thought you needed to know instruments or music. To do so, you use a bonus action on your turn to choose one creature other than yourself within 60 feet who can hear you. That creature gains one bardic inspiration die, a d6. Once within the next 10 minutes, the creature can roll the die and add the number rolled to one ability check. Pretty interesting. Songs of Rest at level 2. You can use soothing music or oration to help revitalize your wounded allies during a short rest. Okay, I can see that. 
music calms the soul. But the thing I was really, really thinking about, how do you make it different? Why is everything spoken word or music when it comes to bards? Can people be inspired by art? Yes. Not my art, but other people's art, I'm sure. What about the art of baking, of cooking, of brewing? You want to heal wounds? Let the bard give you some of the drink he made before he went out on the adventure. Maybe your bard loves making muffins. And those muffins maybe have have a little bit of, we'll say it, marijuana or pot in it. So when you have a muffin, before you rest at campsite, you become more comfortable and you heal better. In my opinion, it works. When you limit a bard to oration or music, I think you actually limit your your ability to think outside the box, to let your bard grow and experience things and, and really become memorable yourself to where other campaigns down the road, your bard will be the story of legends. That to me is a real bard. Now I have in my story, sorry for that S whistle. I have in my story a centaur bard. Now, because he was created in third edition, he does not kind of follow the AD&D rules, but I built him as if I were building a bard. So he has six levels of fighter, five levels of thief, and three levels of bard. So when you see me with do a picture of his artwork, he's wearing a, a nice leather-like armor. He, he has a bow. He ha- has, a, has a spear because he's a centaur. The larger weapons are small, listed as medium size, so he can use them. But I built him from the idea of the fighter-thief-bard aspect. It doesn't quite work. He doesn't have the same gravitas as an AD&D version of the bard. But he was still fun to play um, as an NPC in some of the campaigns I run. He was also a brew, a beer maker, a brew maker. He, he did uh, wines and he did uh, beers. Now, didn't use it to any of effects. That was just his hobby that... Whenever there was downtime and he, the the characters would come back to to his forest or where he was at, he'd say, "Hey, I, ha- I have some new, new beer or new wine. You want to try it?" Now, what the characters didn't know is I gave them a plus one on their saving throws for one day, because I blamed it more on the centaur stuff than the bard stuff because I was an idiot at that point. But it reminded me. On some of the first episodes I did, I pulled a couple things out of the Heroes Feast official D&D cookbook. And I wish I would have pulled this out in time time for Christmas because one of the 
one of the items in this book was dwarven mauled wine. And I, th- I was thinking about it. As, as you read this, or as I read this to you, it says, Pronounced by dwarven diplomats, the finest mauled wine this side of the material plane, this mixed beverage is a multicultural affair. Originally crafted to celebrate the singing of the Short Sea Scroll, which ended the Kinslayer War, and sealed a treaty between the Thorbaden dwarves and the nearby Qualanesi elves of Kryn. Dwarven drinks mix combine their own full body dragon's wine and local spices with delicate fresh fruits provided by the pointy eared bastard, I mean the Qualanesti. And the result was a perfectly balanced, spicy and sweet concoction that satisfied the, the warmed and warmed the insides of both groups as they spent the cold winters constructing their shared fortress of Pax Darkus. So, let's apply this to a bard. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As a DM, A, first, if you're going to have your character bring us to the table, your player better make some to share for everyone at the table, especially in winters. It gets cold. But if you had your bard take some brewing or, or winemaking or, or herbology uh, skills, I absolutely would let him or her make mulled wine to serve before the party went to you know an ice cave up to the north in the winter and maybe get a plus five to their cold resistance. Not magical, but just normal cold resistance. You know, as long as the bard, you know, did all the checks okay. But as a beer maker and winemaker, I actually saw this recipe, and this recipe is one I actually want to make. You take two juice oranges, such as a Valencia. You take eight whole cloves, half a cup of packed light brown sugar, or a little less, a little more, depending on how you like that, one 750-milliliter bottle of a medium-bodied fruity red wine, such as a Merlot, one cinnamon stick, one-eighth of a teaspoon of pure vanilla extract, and three tablespoons of brandy. I don't know. That actually sounds pretty good. I might knock out two of the cloves because I'm not big on the clove. But I have all the materials here except for the cloves to make this. So I think I might have to make this before the next episode. But yes, you take something like this and convert it and use it for your game. Give your characters the benefit of something that would fit their character type. Maybe the bard does have inspirational hard liquor shots. You know, maybe they know they're going to come across something that uh, radiates fear. Okay, well, maybe give them a 160-proof shot of, you know, distilled liquor. Maybe let your characters have a plus two against their fear. Let, let your 
let your bards expand their knowledge. Let them expand the knowledge that they can use. And when we get back, I will introduce you to the bard side of being a DM. So we'll be back in a few minutes. frog in a pot of boiling water and it'll jump right out. But put a frog in a pot of cool water and slowly heat it up, that frog will boil. As a metaphor for us and all that we go through as veterans, it's a story that rings true. We learn to endure the heat in silence. We apply what we learn to life, the bills, the job, the family, things we're expected to handle with ease. When life heats up around us, we just try to stay afloat. We let the water boil. Reaching out isn't easy, but you've never been interested in easy. You join because you are not afraid of hard work. You are not a frog. If you or a veteran you know needs support, don't wait until the water boils. Reach out. Find resources at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. What is dedication? The thing that drives me every day as a dad is Darion. We call him uh, Day Day for short. Every day he's hungry for something, whether it's attention, affection, knowledge. And there's this huge responsibility in making sure that when he's no longer under my wing, that he's a good person. I think the advice I would give is you don't need to know all the answers. The craziest thing was believing that your dad knew everything. So as a dad, you felt like you had to know everything. You had to get everything right. It's okay to make mistakes. As long as it's coming from love, then, you know, it kind of starts to work itself out. I want him to be able to sit back one day and go, we worked together, we did a good job. That's dedication. Find out more at fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. the 
second half of the show. Now, in the Halloween episode I did of Asgard North, I talked about the sound effects and the music to play to heighten the mood. I really wish some of the tools available today were available back when I was DMing every freaking weekend for every Sunday for about 12 to 13 hours a, a day. Because I I love some of these new tools. Once again, the same people who did the music, uh, tabletop audio, they do a sound pad device. And here in a minute, I'm gonna I'm gonna walk you through some of the sounds that you could have had to enhance your game. When I played from well, pretty much from '80s until uh, 2005 on a regular basis. I had to piece together music if I wanted something special. Um, often I would put them in WAV files on my computer or compress them to a, a CD and, and put them in order and try to play them in order if, if I got lucky enough to everything went well. And today you have you know, Amazon Music, Spotify. You have various websites with a whole bunch of different musics and sound effects that you can just have at your finger. In a world where, what, three or four, uh, 30 to 40% are probably games played online, sound effects can really enhance the style of the game. And I'm going to start out with an example of a Halloween setting. Imagine, if you will, Ravenloft. I'm going to pull this up here real quick. And, okay, so let me slide my headphones so I can make sure you guys can hear it as well. So Tabletop Audio has this thing called Castle Raven. 100%. Even though they don't say it because of legal purposes, for use in your Ravenloft type setting. Now I'm going to play some of these sounds, and you tell me if this wouldn't enhance. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Some of the environment, especially during important scenes. So we're going to start with an ominous wind. I hope you can hear the wind. So you already have that kind of setting. Now, you know, off in the distance, a little bit of thunder. Then the rain starts. 
and as the rain starts, you might hear bats begin to settle or startle. So as the characters are walking in rain along, herbal north south, in the distance, near a drawbridge. Is that one of Lord South's elves? Maybe. <laughs> oh, Lord South. You get the feeling Lord South may know that you're in his kingdom. And then right as you get inside in one of the castles, you can turn off these sounds. And inside, as you open the door, Now, can you imagine sitting around the table, maybe have candles lit on the table, lights turned out for the most part, having that sound effect, and I controlled it all from one screen. I think that would set the mood a little bit. I wish I, wish I had these tools available. And you get a whole bunch of different... I'm really, I really am pushing this, this tabletop audio site. I, I freely admit I am a Patreon member of their, of their Patreon because I gladly pay them for all this because the sound effects are just perfect. And you have dungeon forests, starships, old town, combat, taverns, uh, wastelands, future city, and a whole bunch of other ones. Like even, even the one they just put out. Uh, a new one is, is Vikings. So here you can have a uh, frozen wind, rocky shore,
basically have your gaming soundtrack that pushes the buttons. You can loop the sounds. You can play the sounds, change the volumes. There are times at the gaming table where your players will, I don't want to say become bored, but maybe complacent or less enthused about the game. You have this ready when you see that moment for the right scenario. You will see your characters perk up. And the great thing is if you have a bard in your group, have them suggest music. Have them suggest, even if it doesn't fit the medieval fantasy scenario, sometimes they will find a piece of music that they think would work depending on the mood. Have them give you that music. It can change the environment of the table. You will see people that were leaning back and you know maybe checking their phone messages all of a sudden you know maybe put the phone up on the table and and lean in to the table a little more maybe pick up that pencil that they haven't used in 3 weeks you will see a change in your players because they will become invested they will be intrigued and you can really lean in if you're going to have a character play a bard whether, like I said, whether it's someone who loves the cooking network, food network, whatever, and they just want to serve muffins of inspiration, let them. Let them describe it. Let them tell you what to expect as the characters when they taste it because then it plays on to more of the inspiration factor. So if you're going to play the bard, find what you want to do with your specific bard. What is his, his, his muse, you know, does he have one or two muses? Maybe he loves muffins and he loves playing the lyre. Okay, you have two or three different options you can go with. But it's not just music that when it comes to a bard that I think they can really shine. Because for me, bards... Bards are your traveling sages. They know shit no one else knows because they've heard it in a song or a story or a book or from a whore because bards like often go there and I don't blame them. But your players, sometimes you'll get a player who is a avid reader. And when you do, take the time before you even set up your adventure to get to know the bard character a little more. And for tonight's Dragon Magazine, I want to pull out uh, issue 223, Beast Fell and Terrible. This one is from November of 1995. And the article is The Right Monster for the Right Adventure. Now you're thinking, why are you letting the character do this? Well, you're A, you're getting them involved. And B, unless you're playing with a bunch of mental midgets, someone at the table will know more 
about something than you do. So if one of them happens to be an avid reader, preferably more obscure, the better. They might be able to pull something out of Brian Loomley's novel, The Burrows Beneath, for inspiration. They might be able to tell you as Dungeon Master what the Chthonians look like. They might be able to describe it in such a fashion that you can make, take a monster that might be in the Monster Manual, make it look different, and give them the same abilities, and the other characters won't know. And you can make the bard go, think, even as the player go, wait a minute, that sounds like the character I told him about six months ago. Oh my god, is it the Chthonians? And as, as the DM, you give that subtle little nod to the player, and then you let the player describe what they're seeing. And for fun, you change a thing or two as DM because they're not going to know what you changed or why. And and they heard it from somewhere, and that doesn't mean it was factual. Everything a bard knows is not truth. There's a lot of people who think that. If, if a bard passes the check, that means he knows the truth. Well, no, it means he knows the story. The story could be a complete pile of crap. But he knows that story inside and out. So let them tell the story of that character. In the story, or in the, in the article, you have the deep ones from the shadow over Innsmouth. You, you, you have the dimensional shambler from H.P. Lovecraft. What about the flying polyps? Or the ghouls from Lovecraft's Pikmin's model? You start incorporating stories that are in creatures from, like, the Hounds of Tindalus, uh, from the original Frank Belknap long story, um, the Hounds of Tindalus. You let them use that information and bring it to you, and then you bring it to a game in a way that they will enjoy it and everyone else at the table. Because I'm sorry, after about five years of playing... The, the likelihood that most of your players know every creature in the game is high. So if you have someone who has this knowledge, this depth of re- reading uh, of, I don't want to say, I'm, I said obscure, but I don't mean obscure, but maybe maybe not your typical fantasy that people bring to the table. You will see your, your player beam because something they brought to the table is being used in a way that they're enjoying it and everyone else will probably, unless you do a total you know, team party wipe and then, oopsie. Sorry about that. And what is really great about bringing in this other material was somewhere along the line, I forget the year exactly, but third edition D&D brought out this thing called the Open Gaming License. So even if you do not have players at your table who have some of this more useful knowledge that you could bring into the game to make fun, other people out in the world did. And if you know someone who really loves Poe or Lovecraft or Lumley, they might have put out something the material may already be out for you to to purchase, to look at, to browse, and use in your game. The open game license, uh, 
I think it was about half, half a year, year after 3.0 was released, was one of the greatest things that ever happened to D&D. Because to get into TSR or WOTC or whatever the heck they're called now was almost nearly impossible. I think of all the things I've done in the D&D world for third parties that I would I only dreamt of. You know, I have uh, 15 years ago, let me see if I can find it here. 15 years ago, someone approached me about doing the art for a new magazine. Now, I did two issues of the art inside. And then for issue three or four, I got to do the cover art. Now, I'm going to drop it in chat. It is very dated. It's 15-year-old CGI artwork, so it doesn't look quite like anything I do now. I would definitely do a lot better version of it now. But at the time, I was really one of the few individuals doing the digital art in this style, in this way. Um, I wouldn't have been able to do that without the OGL. This was was a tremendous opportunity. I made a little bit of a name for myself at Dun, uh, Dungeonie, doing some art, doing some beta testing, working with Monty Cook to to put something out for the Haiti uh, flood relief, uh, the first Haiti major flood relief, not the most recent one. All of that material would not have been possible or legal without the OGL. And I think back to a time before the open game license came out where my my friend and I, we had just read the second edition uh, player's handbook of clerics. And inside they had some fighting monks. And we thought, you know, if we could combine the clerical aspect of, of the fighting monks with the druids, so we can incorporate some animals, and tie it in with Shaolin monks, because they already use techniques based on animal-style fighting, that we could create our own fighting monks, and we ended up doing it. We created the the, uh, monks of Palsidae. Originally, there were five types, and I think the highest we ever had was 16 types of monks. My favorite was one I never released, which was the gargoyle monk. When your monk got to 20th level, they turned into a gargoyle, became immortal, and could turn back into their uh, monk form, their living monk form, whenever the monastery was threatened and they could defend the monastery. Kind of made the monastery safe from almost anything. I kind of like that, that one myself, but I never released it. But when we started doing it, we were writing up treatments. We were writing up you know, letters and paragraphs and, and de- detailing it because we wanted to send it in to get published. But then we were like, fuck, we can't. We send it in, we're going to get denied, and three months later we're going to see a Wizards of the Coast product or a TSR product with the same fucking idea. And then what do we do? Nothing. Just sit there and bitch and moan that we got screwed over like they did everyone else. Well, then the third edition came out with the OGL, 
And after looking for artists and not finding any that we could work with or trust, I became the artist. This was probably five, six years before the I got the cover of that magazine. And I've been doing art ever since, and half my art is still about the Monks of Pals today because it's such a great story and, and such a great thing. But eventually, I got good enough with the art that I thought, you know what, I could put a, a product together in a decent enough format, PDF file, and upload it to DriveThruRPG. I ended up selling 70 copies of it. I was shocked. I, I even sold 70 copies of it. Now, I made, I think, 250 off of each because I was selling it for like $7.99. But I made like $2.53 bucks off of each one I sold. I never, if you were told 15-year-old me, I would have made money putting out a D&D product. I would not have believed it. And since then, I've gone out to release a handful of products. Probably over the, probably over the last fifteen years, I've been blessed enough to make almost a thousand dollars, which is shocking to me that a people would read my stuff or be by my art. But it was all possible because of the OGL. Pathfinder was the attempt to correct all the errors with D&D 3rd Edition. Pathfinder, the people of Pathfinder did an amazing job. Pathfinder was better than D&D 3.0. They they fixed everything right. Eh, There's still some quality issues, but once D&D entered the computer phase, D&D was never the same. Then you have games like Castles and Crusaders, another take on D&D that, though not as popular as Pathfinder, has a stronghold of people who play it. But the brilliance of the OGL was not that you could now produce things for third edition. It was that you could produce things for the earlier editions. The people that still played the box sets D&D, AD&D, 2nd edition. You could put out material for that. It was the golden age, in my opinion, of creation for the D&D realm. You could take these really good, for all, all busting on it, a really good basic set of rules, tweak them, and create a game that is amazing. And I just found out about a game earlier this week that I guess used part of the OGL that deals, that's based off of uh, Arthur. There's apparently a Pendragon type uh, RPG or TT RPG or something. I, I forget what it was. I haven't looked it up yet because I'm afraid to see how much it is because I can't afford it. But <laughs> the fact you could play Knights of King Arthur, oh, I, I, I so need that book. Once again, made possible because you, you could, half the work was already done for you by using the basic rules that were provided in the OGL. You just had to be careful with the words and language that you used. And I have purchased 
third-party gaming material for a very long time since we've been allowed to. I've even purchased some for the sole purpose of this show because sometimes you see something out there going, oh, that module is $1.99 and it takes place in winter? Well, screw it. Let me see what it looks like. Maybe I can talk about it. Because everyone has different experiences, different backgrounds, different intellects, different fields of interest. So when you need that obscure material, there is a chance that someone else has already put it together for you. Now, why am I mentioning this? Because someone, actually I know who, but some jackass at Wizards of the Coast is coming up with a new OGL. 1.1, I think it's called. Now, I don't know how many people know who runs Wizards of the Coast division right now at Hasbro. But I will say she comes from Microsoft. I don't think I have to say much more than that. But what's fascinating is how much they're going to shoot themselves in the, in the foot over this. Because they, reading the, the pre-release, reading what was somewhat, it gets rid of 1.0. It is no longer an authorized license agreement. By ending the original OGL, many licensed publishers will have to completely overhaul their products and distribution in order to comply with the updated rules. Large publishers who focused almost exclusively on products based on the original OGL, which includes Piazzo, Cobalt Press, and Green Ronin, will be under pressure to update their entire business model incredibly fast. And this is, this is no mistake. In this article I'm reading from Gizmodo, According to the document procured by io9, the new agreement states that the open game license will, was always intended to allow the community to help grow D&D and expand it creatively. It wasn't intended to subsidize major competitors. Bullshit. Absolute bullshit. The individual who created the OGL, his sole one of his major comments was by creating major competition and competitors, we ha- will force ourselves to be better ourselves. And he was spot on right. Because when 4.0, that shit show was released, their numbers tanked. It had nothing to do with the competitors. It had to do with how much 4.0 absolutely sucked balls. And they had no one to blame but themselves. Now, Piazzo, publisher of Pathfinder RPG, one of, if not the largest competitor uh, they declined to comment on Gizmodo's uh, article. Chris Premis, founder and president of Green Ronin Publisher, said that despite the fact that one of their own products, Mutants and Masterminds, which, by the way, is also a really good game system, was published under the original OGL in 2002 and is still available today. They had not seen the updated OGL, and they do not believe there's any benefit to switching to the new one as described. So they're going to, from the sounds of that, they're going to fight legally that they agreed to the original, and you cannot change anything that's already in publication, despite what Wizards of the Coast says. 
Now, what is really, really fascinating is the introduction of royalties. The new OGL has introduced royalties for anyone making over $750,000. So if you make under $750,000, allegedly at this point, licensees get to keep the money they earn. But the new OGL states that the commercial agreement covers all commercial uses, whether they're profitable or not. So if you go into the red on a Kickstarter that earned $800,000 in backing money, you will still owe Wizards of the Coast regardless of the fact that you did not profit from the venture. So allegedly there are a handful of tiers. An initiate tier, if you are if you have registered at least one license work but haven't generated 50,000 or more in total gross revenue from the OGL commercial products in a given year, you are in the initiate tier. B, the intermediate tier, if your license work have generated more than 50,000 in total revenue, but less than 750,000, you are now in the intermediate tier. If C, expert tier, if your license works have generated at least 750,000 in total revenue in a given year, you are at the expert tier. According to the document, if and only if you are generating a significant amount of money from your license works, the revenue you make from your license work in excess of 750,000 in a single calendar year is considered qualifying revenue and you are responsible for paying wizards of the coast 20 to 25 percent of that qualifying revenue a draft goes on to explain that if you make seven hundred fifty thousand and one dollar you will owe wizards of the coast 25 cents as they are asking for royalties in the dollar made in excess of the tier so who has to register no matter what tier you are in or how much you believe your product will make, you must register with us any new, that might be a keyword there, new license work you intend to offer for sale, including a description of the license work. We'll, ask, we'll also ask for your contact information, information on where you intend to publish the license work, its price, among other things. Creators will also be required to use a specific badge in order to publish to, uh, for publicity, and uh, obviously identify their work as covered by the new OGL. And they will have to give Wizards of the Coast a copy of the publication. Cheap bastards won't even buy it themselves. The early draft suggests that many of these processes will be handled through the company's official digital toolset, D&D Beyond. Here's what kills me. And I agree, Amish, they need to burn. They need to burn down quickly. After the horribleness of 4.0, they released a good version of 5.0. I've actually updated my Monks of Pals today for 5.0 because the groundwork in the game that they created is solid. I tweak some things here and there, but for the most part, it is solid. Even with the new addition, really, there's no other way to say this. There is one and one reason only, I think, for D&D's resurgence, and that is critical role. 
do you know how much money Critical Role brings in in a year? It's way more than 750000 I think one report last year was, or the year before, was 10 or $11 million. So let's just say ten million, ten million seven hundred fifty thousand. So they earned ten million over. Wizards of the Coast will be requiring them from the way the document comes out for twenty five percent of the ten million because they're using licensed D and D products, basically. So Wizards of the Coast wants two point five million dollars. From people who it didn't they didn't televise their games, D and D would not be in a resurgence period like it is. The stupidity conf- oh I thought Amazon was were idiots for the Lord of the Ring Rings of Power bull crap. At least they threw money away. These bastards are trying to steal money. I... I, I, The the frightening thing is, based on what this is, because we do technically earn a little bit of money off of this podcast... Do I have to register with those fuckers? And I'm sorry for my language, but as someone who thought the original OGL was the godsend to D&D that was going to make D&D better, and for the most part it did, do I have to register or will I have to register this podcast because I might make three bucks off of it this year? I mean, yeah, they're not getting my money, but they don't need to know about it. Because if they know what I'm doing, do you think they would let me air this? If I have to send in, you know, each episode's outline, A, I'd never get this show freaking on the air. And B, they, if they knew what I said about some of the stuff in the previous 20 episodes, you don't think I'm going to get an email from them? This is just absolutely the Microsoft way of doing things, and I'm not surprised the head of it is doing this. I'm not. It's absolutely bullcrap. I hope I hope this is the, the final edition of D&D. I hope D&D 1 or D&D whatever. I hope to God... The game I love. I've been, I've been involved in D and D for forty years. Every, almost every bit of my artwork, if it's not beer related or twin related, it is based off my D and D stories, or stories that I've never got to explain or express before. And I hope it dies. If they go through with this. I absolutely hope they die in the biggest fire they can possibly find. Well, on that happy note, 
I think it's time to go finish the rest of my beer and maybe have a second one to calm down. Thank you for tuning in tonight. I hope it was an interesting look at Bards and my personal opinion on the new OGL. I will keep an eye out on this as it as it unfolds because, like I said, I have sold material in the past that used the OGL. This podcast could, in theory, fall under the OGL. My art, because I've I've sold character art, even though it's my own creation or the person I created or, or that they created and hired me to create their art for, do I have to... Re- I, so I am going to be very involved in, in seeing where this goes because it absolutely affects me personally, and I'm not happy about it. So if you need that mulled wine recipe, let me know. You can find me at Stoner Brewing Co. on Twitter. I will be happy to share share the recipe, although, like I said, I might share the, the tweaked recipe that I'm going to do. That way I don't get in trouble, even though that's books technically OGL too, and you can't really copyright recipes. But that's another story. So thank you for tuning in, catching me again in two weeks when I talk about something else D&D related or maybe just to cover my ass for a little bit. Maybe we'll go top secret. No, wait a minute. That's TSR. That might still follow. Oh, I'll figure something out to talk about in two weeks. So (laughs) until then, have a great Saturday night and may may you wake up in the morning and roll 20 for the day. Appreciate it, guys. The greatest adventure is what lies ahead Today and tomorrow are yet to be said The chances, the changes are all yours to make The mold of your life is in your hands to break The greatest adventure is there if you're bold Let go of the moment That life makes you whole Do I see that happening? No, you're outside by the tavern Well, I get drunk There are, there are seven ogres surrounding you How could they surround us? I had Morgan Titan's magical watchdog cast No, you didn't I'm getting drunk totally did. You asked me if I wanted any equipment before this adventure, and I said no. But I need material components for all my spells, so I cast Mordenkainen's Faithful Watchdog. But you never actually cast it. Roll the dice to see if I'm getting drunk! <sighs> yeah, you are. Are there any girls there? Yeah. I did, though. I completely said when you asked me. No, you didn't. You didn't actually say that you were casting the spell, so now there's ogres, okay? Ogres? Man, I've got an ogre slaying knife. It's got a plus nine against ogres. You're not there. You're getting drunk. Okay, but if there's any girls there, I want to do 